for, um, that was written in the late 1800s by a guy named Matheson, I think is his last name. Did I get that right, Becky? Is it Ma- what is it? Jordan? George Matheson. Did I get it right? Thank you. And uh, uh, in the, the language was rather poetic, rather flowery. So those of you that like poetry would have really liked that. And uh, it's just, you know, sometimes when we, when we reach back into what is more a, 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 a tradition when the church was uh, actually would have been younger, but, you know, it, it feels old to us. Sometimes we really need to pay attention to the, to the lyrics in a situation like that in order to appreciate what's being expressed. And I know that the ones of you who are, have that kind of creative bent probably enjoy that more than the engineers among us. <laughs> like, huh? What? What are we saying here? Is that, is, you think that's fair? No, no. The engineers are saying, no, no, we don't. Um, let me just say this too. You know, last week we mentioned that the, we have uh, middle school students up in the mountains this week. Um, I guess there's about 33 or four folks up there. And uh, yeah, very neat. And we mentioned to you that there was a need for scholarship money uh, for some of those students to go. And uh, I, th- I think Sheila said that they needed a uh, several thousand dollars to be able to make that happen for students, for all the students that needed scholarship money. And what happened was after the first service, I think they had almost covered that amount. And then a few more of you filled in from this service and there were sufficient funds to scholarship every student who wanted to go. Yeah, it's very good. It's really very good. And, you know, we, we, we pray up these things in, in a big way because we know that these can be very pivotal moments in the life of a young man, young woman, um, middle school age, right on up. And, you know, we, we pray that they would hear from God in a very personal and powerful way through the speakers, through the interaction of time with each other, um, through the, the, the sidebar conversations that happen with these retreats. So uh, we'll pray for them again. They're having a worship service this morning. Um, probably uh, it's getting close to the end uh, at this point in time. And we're going to pray for them as we pray for ourselves. Father, I give thanks to you for just the gracious, gracious giving heart of the church who last year, Father, or last week, uh, really responded graciously um, with gifts that made possible the opportunity for some young men and women to go to this retreat. And we pray, Father, for the, the students up there, as well as the leaders, that you would be working and moving and speaking to them and calling them into um, deeper places of faith with you. Uh, we pray, God, that this would be a marker, a memorable moment in the life of these young students uh, for them to go deeper in their faith. And uh, just thank you, God, that we get to be a part with other churches uh, of an event like that uh, this this weekend. And then, Lord, we would ask you to teach us now as we come to study, come to listen, come to learn. Uh, would you be our teacher? And uh, let us get better, Lord, at this thing of love languages. For we ask it in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen? So uh, last week, I think, was uh, the weekend that our country, we, uh, we, we celebrated Martin Luther King Day. Martin Luther King Jr. preached a sermon once. The title of the sermon was Drum Major Instinct. And it turns out this was a sermon that he preached just a few weeks before he was shot and killed. And in the sermon, he actually gave instructions about what he wanted people to say at his funeral. And uh, he said he didn't really want people to talk about his fame or his achievements. You know, there, here's a guy who... Uh, won a Nobel Prize. He had a few achievements. And uh, he said what he hoped people would say about him was that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. That's what he said. 
That's what I want people to say about me, is that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. We're trying to get better ourselves at loving people, uh, the people up close to us, people at work, people at school, people wherever we traffic, wherever we move, uh, people here at church. We want to get better at loving each other. Many of us are reading a little book together called The Five Love Languages, and at the core of this book is the idea that what uh, makes me feel loved isn't necessarily what makes you feel Love. So we want to learn the love languages of the people around us so that we can love them better, more effectively. The five love languages that we're talking about are words of affirmation. We already talked about that. Quality time. We talked about that. The giving and receiving of gifts, acts of service, physical touch. And so we're learning what our personal love language is, sort of our default love language, if you will. And uh, we're also being encouraged to learn about the love languages of those around us. There's a little diagnostic tool if you have the book, Five Love Languages that you can take that can help you determine sort of what your default love language is. You can also go online, www.5lovelanguagesspelledout.com, and right there is a diagnostic test you can take. It takes just a few minutes, and that will help you to determine what your love language is. And uh, now the love language that we're going to be looking at this morning is the love language of giving and receiving gifts. Uh, And it's one that uh, very powerfully... And very clearly we see displayed in the life and in the teaching of Jesus Christ. Um, You're all familiar with this passage of scripture, I'm sure. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave, right? Gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him uh, shall not perish but have eternal life. And you see, God loved, therefore God gave. That is what love does. Love always gives. Uh, The gift doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be fancy, but it it just has to say, I love you. That's what's important. I've got some artwork from one of my granddaughters. It's cute as all get out. And uh, it's done when she was very, very young. Uh, It's crayon color drawing, you know, and uh, stick figures and some glitter on it. And uh, one of those bubble bulleted, you know, things for what, when you want a character to say something and says, I love you, Papa, you are the best. And just very, very cool. Do you think I would take $10,000 for a piece of art like that? You bet I would. And, uh, (laughs) that's a stupid question. In fact, a very stupid question. She could always make another one, but, uh, But the thought behind that little piece of artwork, the love that's expressed in it, that is, in fact, priceless. It really is. You know, when couples get married and they make promises to each other, they exchange rings. And why do we do that? Well, you know, it's the value of the rings that uh, that doesn't matter so much. It's what those things symbolize. The engagement ring that I gave Holly um, was actually a ring that was my mother's when she was married to my father, Paul Corey, who then passed away when I was a young boy, but that ring had a very special diamond in it. I always called it a mystery diamond because you literally needed, I'm not making this up, a magnifying glass to see the diamond in that ring. But at the time, it really didn't matter, not to Holly, not to me. It was a symbol. It was an expression. It was a concrete way of saying, you know, I think about you all the time. I care about you. I, you know, I, I, you're not going to be alone. I want to spend my life with you. I love you. That's what that symbol said. And this week we focus on the love language of giving. And what I want to start with is some teaching on the relationship of agape love to this language of giving and this practice of giving. Agape love is what Jesus talked about. It's what Jesus demonstrated 
uh, in his life. Agape love is uh, itself a self-sacrificing kind of love. It's a gracious love. There's a, a fascinating book about giving uh, that I just read. It's called Gratitude, an Intellectual History. It's written by a guy named Peter Lightheart. And uh, a lot of what I'm going to say this morning you know, comes right out of this book. I highly recommend uh, this book if you're into this kind of thing. Uh, and, and here's the thing. It turns out uh, the person who had the biggest impact on our understanding of giving gifts and what that signifies, the person who fundamentally changed our ideas about giving and gratitude more than anybody else is, of course, Jesus, good answer. Good church answer. Um, But this is actually just a matter of historical evidence. If we take time to look at this, it'll help us kind of better understand Jesus and uh, kind of the, the, the type of love that he lived and the type of love that he advocates, which is agape love. It'll help us to be better able to give to people in our lives. So I want to spend a little time getting some background here if we can, okay? Mm. Okay, so here's the deal. In the ancient world, the giving of gifts was very important. Maybe even more important than it is in our world, our age, our culture today. Anthropologists have been studying this, I found out, for over a hundred years simply because it is so much a part of the economic system of the ancient world. You see, they didn't have a market economy like we do with stores and wage structures and free markets and all that kind of thing. But in the ancient world, understand, gifts were an important part of the economy and gifts were given, but gifts were not free. They were not free. They were embedded in a system that meant there were, always, there were always strings attached to any gift that you receive. In fact, gifts place the receiver under an obligation to reciprocate in this ancient culture we're talking about. This was just understood. This was how things worked. Everybody knew this. That meant that the person who was able to give the more expensive gift was a person of higher status person of more power, more wealth, more honor. And that gift would place the the lower person, the poorer person, under obligation. The poorer the person would uh, be, they they would have to give back to the person who had given them a gift. And, of course, if they were poor, maybe, maybe they would give back through labor, through time, through service of some time, through, through uh, showing of honor, if you will. They would have to give back in some way. And this created what has been called, what Peter Lighthart calls, the, uh, a circle of reciprocity. And so giving was all about this circle of reciprocity. In Rome, this is generally true also in the ancient world, but in Rome, in Jesus' day, the giver, you see, was a patron. And uh, that's just what they would be called in that society. And the recipient was actually viewed as a, as a client, if you will. And they would be obligated, as I've said, to show the patron gratitude. That uh, the Latin word for gratitude was obsequium from which we get the the word uh, in English obsequious, the idea of being obedient and attentive to someone uh, in an almost excessive, almost servile kind of way, like fawning over someone. That's actually the root from where we get the word gratitude because that's the history of this idea of gratitude. In the ancient Roman world, gratitude didn't primarily mean feeling thankful or saying, hey, thanks, I really appreciate that. It was not a feeling. Gratitude was not a feeling. It was not an emotion. Gratitude meant, again, that you were obligated to offer service, work, 
time, labor, praise, honor in exchange for the gift or gifts that you had received. You literally owed a debt of gratitude. That's the system of debt in which everybody lives. So, you know, in the morning, it's morning time, and, and uh, you've been given a gift. So you get up, and you're a client, and you go to the home of your patron. You go there to pay your respects. How you doing? Just wanted to check in. And you would surround your patron uh, to pay your respects with other clients who might also be there. You'd be a part of that patron's entourage, if you will. They're, they're posse, for lack of a better way of saying it. And you would accompany him maybe to the Roman bath or maybe to the forum. If he had a speech to give, you would be there. You're part of his entourage. Good job, man. That is awesome. Or you would address him also with a, with a term of honor, dominus, the idea uh, of that's kind of like our sir. Or you might even call him pater, father. It was another way that a patron could be appropriately addressed. And these individuals were known technically in the Roman system as benefactors. They were benefactors. Benefactors gave very generously and quite intentionally to impose debts of obligation, of obedience that would then increase their own status, their own power, if you will, their own honor. Peter Lightheart writes this. He says, a patron expected his clients to form an entourage to blow trumpets and shout his praises as the patrons passed through the streets of Rome. So as a client, you'd kind of give your, your patron a little parade, if you will. And you say, hey, look at my patron. He's the greatest. You know, kind of a thing. That's what was going on. Gifts were exercises in power that established one's superiority over the clients that he had. Now, there would be debates about this system of gift giving. You can imagine. And a lot of advice was given about this system that was in place. For example, Aristotle said that you ought to work real hard to avoid ever receiving a gift of any kind. You don't want to be a gift receiver. In fact, he said the great sold man never wants to be in a position of receiving because it obligates you, you see. So understand, giving was largely a strategy to enrich yourself so you could get even more from the clients that now were obligated to you. And there was a motto in Latin, do et des, and literally it's, it's I give and you give, but in its cultural context, what it really meant is I give so that you will give me, you see. And this was how one also, <clears throat> excuse me, related to God. In that day and in that age, a worshiper would say, a worshiper would come and say, you know, here, I've got this bull. I'm sacrificing this bull to you uh, so that you will give me what I need, rain for my crops, descendants for my family, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that same mindset is what undergirded human interactions as well. I give so that you will give. And so the idea is in self-interest, you have received in self-interest, you give. And so there is this system of, of reciprocity and debt in the ancient world. The debt of gratitude could actually be very oppressive. You had to be grateful. And that meant expressing concrete gratitude to your benefactor. Work, service, praise, honor for whatever gifts and whatever benefits you had been given. And you yourself? Well, you would use this same system. You would take whatever you had to give to others so they would owe a debt of gratitude to you. That way you would get more back. And this system, this circle of reciprocity, this debt of gratitude 
tended to oppress the poor, as you can well imagine. It also tended to corrupt the rich, and and it also tended to make everybody quite self-centered about what they did with their stuff. Now, spoiler alert, one person is going to mess all this up really bad. Who would that be? You're doing so good this morning. Jesus is always the answer. You see, Jesus comes along and he takes, he takes this little group of people, Israel, right? And he gives to the broader world a whole different understanding of giving and of gratitude. To begin with, Jesus messes up the who. Who should we be grateful to? You see, in the ancient world, it was obviously your benefactor, your patron. That's who you're grateful to. But for Jesus, Jesus says we should be grateful to God. Uh, Jesus teaches that for all of us, our life depends entirely, 100%, not on a human benefactor who gives out of their own self-interest, but on our Heavenly Father who gives with no strings attached. I mean, he gives self-sacrificially, which is way different from gods like Jupiter or Zeus or Baal, for that matter. These gods always give out of self-interest. But Jesus puts God in the center of this great circle of reciprocity. And Jesus teaches people to give with agape love, to will and to work for the good of other people, regardless whether they deserve it, regardless whether they will repay you for what you give them. Jesus said this, this is shocking, a shocking teaching. He said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes the, he, the father causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, Jesus is saying God gives to everybody regardless whether they are going to give back to him. God is always doing this. And we ought to be that way too, Jesus argues. And what is more, Jesus says everything, understand everything is a gift from God. So we should be grateful for everything. And Jesus says what he's doing is he's infinitely expanding the sphere of gratitude. It's not now just a gift that a benefactor gives you. You should be grateful for all of the things that are encompassed in life. He makes the argument that God is always making the sun to shine. God is making the rain to fall. Uh, God clothes the lilies of the field. God feeds the sparrows. He gives us families and friends and occupations. He causes our heart to beat. He he gives us the next breath of air uh, that we're about to take. And, And Jesus says this is just reality. This is how life is. God is giving to us all the time. All the time whether we know it or not. And therefore you have statements from some of Jesus' followers, uh, for example, statements like this, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In other words, don't just give thanks to the benefactor that gives you gift. Give thanks to God. Paul also says, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks, not to a benefactor, but giving thanks to God the Father Through him, through Jesus. So we see these constant calls uh, not to just have an attitude of gratitude. Um, 
These calls in Scripture weren't mainly talking about a mental attitude or a feeling. These Christ followers, they were being very, very subversive. Uh, They were putting all of humanity, understand, on kind of a level playing field. Everybody is now supposed to be grateful to a single patron, namely our Heavenly Father. And we're to be grateful for every single gift we get. Since every good and perfect gift comes ultimately from the Father. There's now no room for that old self-promoting, that old self-centered system anymore. Jesus is saying we're done with that. Jesus says, so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets. As the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they've received the reward in full. So, you see, the reason Jesus says don't announce it with trumpets is because people were announcing it with trumpets, you understand. I mean, they actually did that because of this this whole circle of reciprocity thing. And Jesus is not just making this stuff up, pulling it out of thin air. He's saying, hey, gang, we are going to opt out of that whole system. I'm bringing a different system, a better system now. And so Jesus says things like this, the kings of the Gentiles... The Romans lorded over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, he says. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. And I want you to see that when Jesus talks that way, he's not using hyperbole. He's not using sarcasm. He's actually giving a sociologically accurate and precise description of the times, practices, things that were actually happening. And the Romans would have heard Jesus teaching and go, yep, that's exactly how our system works. We're all about lording it over you. That's what we're doing this for. That's why we give gifts. That's why we have titles like Dominus, which means sir, and Pater, which means father, and benefactor. These are titles of honor. We want honor. And Jesus says, well, we're going to start a whole new system. He says, and uh, he says, do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father. And he is in heaven. And when, when Jesus was making that statement, he wasn't saying, hey, little kids, you shouldn't call your dad daddy. That's, that's not the point. What he's saying is, is we don't have benefactors. We're not going to have potters. We all stand together in complete humility under a great and generous God who alone is our self-sacrificing benefactor. And if, you know, if we were back in that day, we'd realize, wow, okay, this teaching is very revolutionary. This is, this is really going to blow up the system here, big time. And so now, you know, who should be enriched by your giving? And my giving. Well, in the old ancient system, the answer would have been you give to people who can pay you back. People who will understand that because of your gift, they now have a debt of gratitude to you. But Jesus is saying, no, not not anymore. Not in my kingdom. I want you to give when it's not to your financial advantage. In fact, Jesus actually gives priority to giving gifts to people who could not pay you back. Back, this is absolutely culturally insane when Jesus was teaching this. This is scandalous teaching, totally countercultural. Jesus said, when you give up a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, 
the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous by a heavenly benefactor, if you will. Now, is Jesus saying that it's a sin to have your relatives over for dinner? Yes, absolutely. It says it right there. So you've been looking for this passage all your life long. There you go. That's where it is. Luke 14. Um, No, obviously. No, that's not what he's saying. What he is saying, he's saying, guys, we're opting out of the give to get system. We are opting out of this. He's saying when you give to the poor, somehow, in some way, you are actually giving to God. In fact, Jesus said this explicitly. He said one time, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And uh, the old model, you understand, was in self-interest you have received, so in self-interest you give. And that new model, though, is rooted and grounded in this thing we're talking about, agape love. And so Jesus says, freely you have received... Freely give. Freely give. And you, you kind of understand or, or start to when you, when you understand a little bit of the historical context why Jesus was and his teaching and his followers, why this was so revolutionary. It's calling on the carpet the very system that structures society. Um, Jesus changed the world with this. Now, you see, God is at the center of humanity. In Jesus' way of thinking. And that humbles and that levels everyone. Now all of us alike are receivers of God's unceasing gifts. So that we concretely express our gratitude to God with ever increasing joy and generosity to others. Everything I've got comes from the Heavenly Father. And that frees me up to use what I've got to bless you whether you deserve it or not. That's the dynamic here. Uh, Jesus, James' brother, wrote this. He said, don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above. It's from the heavenly benefactor, not from a human benefactor. And he goes on to say, it's from God coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. You understand, one of the, one of the real problems, uh, there are many problems, but one of the real problems with that whole circle of reciprocity thing, I mean, you, you are always at the mercy of the mood of your benefactor, Right? I mean, if you please them, they'd give you more gifts. If you made them angry, there's no telling what they would do. There's no telling. I mean, am I showing enough gratitude? Are they going to be happy with the gratitude I'm showing them? Am I giving them enough praise, enough labor, enough service, enough acknowledgement? They were always just like shifting shadows, but not the heavenly benefactor. And so James uh, gives us instruction, too, on how the rich and the poor to be treated in our, in our families of faith. He says, my brothers, and, and, uh, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Don't give special places in the service for the wealthy among you. Paul likewise says, now he, he writes to those living at Rome. So keep that in mind, living in Rome. And he says this, he says, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes, to whom taxes are owed. Revenue, to whom revenue is owed. Respect, to whom respect is owed. Honor, to whom honor is owed. But then right in the middle of that, uh, owe no one anything. Except to love them. To love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. That's revolutionary. 
You see, this is not Paul giving us money management tips. He's not saying, hey, you can't take out a loan of any kind. He's actually rejecting an entire way of life that oppresses and enslaves and humiliates and patronizes and corrupts human beings. And he's embracing, embracing an entirely new way of doing life, the way of Jesus, where we all trust God to meet our needs and are a part of a community that lives in, in mutual humility and confident generosity that honors the value of every human being and doesn't strive to put some human beings beneath us with a debt of gratitude, you see. Now understand, this whole thing, all this teaching, this put Rome and the Roman Empire on tilt. This whole thing really did. Jesus knew it would. That's why, although the New Testament is filled with uh, command after command for people who follow Jesus to be grateful people. If you've ever read the New Testament, you know that to be true. But even though that's true, the Romans frequently charge Christians with the sin of ingratitude, with being ungrateful. This was frequently done. Um, for example, there's a, one instance that we know about with the emperor Diocletian. And he found out that one of, the favorite, one of his favorite Praetorian guards, somebody that he had promoted, someone that he had given gifts to, his name was Sebastian, and he had become a Christian, a Christ follower. And this is what the emperor wrote about Sebastian. He said, ingrate, <laughs> I have given you first rank in my palace, and you have striven against me and my gods. And so the emperor tied Sebastian to a stake and shot him full of arrows. That's what he did. And according to this medieval painting, they they must have been standing at every possible angle in order to shoot him full of arrows. I I don't know. Yeah, there's arrows coming from everywhere. But that that is uh, uh, what supposedly happened to Sebastian. He was just shot full of arrows. Now, why would the emperor call him an ingrate? Well, we, we kind of understand now, don't we? It was because Sebastian broke that circle of reciprocity that Rome and the Roman emperor was built upon. The emperor was thinking, hey, buddy, come on. I gave to you. I made you a captain. You owe me now. You owe honor to me. You you need to worship the gods that I worship, and you need to make me rich, and you need to pump me up and inflate my ego. You owe it to me to do what I tell you to do. That's the idea here. But Christians expressed their gratitude chiefly to God. And they made their generosity extend as far as the poorest of the poor. Something that Sebastian, the captain of the Praetorian Guard, was doing uh, at first unbeknownst to the emperor and others. When the emperor would condemn someone to death, uh, Sebastian was going to families, who Christians who had lost loved ones because the emperor was putting them to death. Here comes Sebastian behind the scenes helping with gifts, helping with acts of mercy and service to bring comfort and encouragement to the bereaved. (laughs) Uh, These are people the emperor had condemned to death, right? And here's Sebastian behind the scenes trying to help these people, these families, people who could not pay him back. This infuriated the emperor. That's why he was considered an ingrate. Uh, Peter Lightheart writes this. He says, the emphasis upon charity to the poor and the inclusion of God in that circle of reciprocity were unprecedented in the ancient treatments of giving and generosity. This is a whole new way of looking at things, a whole new way of operating. And I'll tell you what, it changed the world. Agape love changed 
the world. So, <coughs> excuse me. Self-sacrificial giving turned the world upside down. It was embodied in the life and in the teaching of Jesus. And it forever changed things. Jesus created a community uh, to practice this way of living. It's called the church. To practice sacrificial giving to others who had needs. uh, And to give to even people who could not pay them back. And I'll tell you what, that community uh, with no resources or power was pitted against the, the great empire of Rome that had all the human resources and power you could possibly imagine. And I'll tell you what, that little community with agape love just kicked Rome's butt. It's a theological class I had. But that is what happened. That is what happened historically. And, you know, all of this kind of begs the question, really, uh, for us personally. You know, what are we doing with the gifts that God offers to us? For some here, maybe the question, you know, have you received the greatest gift that God offers you, which is the gift of his son? We're back to John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. You know, the incredible, remarkable truth here is that God wants to give you and me the gift of Jesus. And there's so many things implied in that, so many things that are, uh, that are important and tangible things that come with the gift of Jesus, the forgiveness of your sins, friendship of a Savior. A fresh start in your life, spiritually speaking. Power of the Spirit of God to guide you. The love of spiritual brothers and sisters, a part of an extended spiritual family. The church, spiritual gifts to empower you. Purpose to sustain you through any kind of situation, any difficulty. Hope of eternal life to comfort you, even beyond death. You see, all of that, all of these things are are just gifts that God wants to give you. And what, what he says to us is receive it. Come in faith. Come in repentance. Come acknowledging your sin. Lord, you know, I need you. I need your forgiveness. I need the life that you alone can give. I need to know your son, Jesus. Please forgive my sin and come into my life and teach me what it means to live in your kingdom. And he'll do that if we ask him. It's incredible. And if you do do that, well, then guess what? Uh, If you become a Jesus follower, Jesus then calls you to love. That's why we're here as a church, really. We said this the very first week we started into this series. You know, Jesus said this. He said, "Um, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. That is the mark of a Christian. This thing of love. And it's a little bit shocking to me that it's not, you know, it's not doctrinal purity. Doctrinal purity is a good thing. But that's not the primary mark of a Christian. Love is. It's remarkable. The church is supposed to be all about love. Other things too. But understand, this is primary. So this week, you know, if you love people, you know, out of the abundance of God's generous gifts to you, practice speaking the love language of giving gifts. Practice it this week. 
This week, offer to God and to the people around you a giving heart. And if you're typically a reluctant giver, ask God this week to move you to a better place, to uh, the place of maybe a motivated giver. I mean, after all, God is giving to you and giving to you and giving to you and giving to you and me. Why not be like him when it comes to giving to the folks around us? Uh, a week ago Saturday, I took my wife Holly to the airport. She was going to fly to Florida to spend some time with her folks, just a few days with her folks. And, and she left. And as she was leaving, she asked me if I'd mind doing some chores, some cleaning chores for her since she wasn't going to be here to do them. And in my heart, my immediate response was, no. I don't want to clean. I don't want to do your chores. I have a lot to do while you're gone. I have a sermon to write about agape love and self-sacrificial love. And that's, that's hard work to do that. And not only that, but I've got to go to somebody's house to watch a playoff game on Sunday. And it's, in, it's somebody in the church, so that means it's ministry. And he has big spiritual needs. He has big prayer requests. He has big burdens. He's got a big widescreen TV. So, no, I don't want to do your chores. You do your chores. But I happen to be teaching this dang series on agape love. (laughs) Love like Jesus loves. Self-sacrificial love. And, And the truth is, I do want to learn to love better. I need to learn to love better. Some of you might be familiar with the Apostle Paul's words where he writes uh, about not giving reluctantly. Uh, It's in 2 Corinthians. He says, God loves what? A cheerful giver. I'll tell you a little secret. So does everybody else. We all love a cheerful giver. But what's sad about me sometimes is how so subtly and yet clearly my heart can be, it can communicate its kind of dark side. And, you know, I can say, sure yeah fine i'll i'll do your cleaning for you in other words you know yeah you have successfully placed this burden on me because i cannot think of a smooth way to get out of it and uh, yeah so sure yeah but with every fiber of my being i'll make sure you know how burdensome you are to my happiness (laughs) what am i the only one here (laughs) yeah okay What I could have said in my heart and, you know, I could have said, you know what? I have a great wife and I have tons of stuff to be thankful for and I want to be a blessing to you. Sure. Sure. I'll do the chores you want me to do. Truthfully, it's a small gift. It costs me very, very little and it communicates love. You know why? It's simple because love gives. That is what love does. And you know something else? Giving always wins, ultimately. And giving heals. And giving connects. And giving bonds. Giving gives life. Giving is the best way to live because it's who God is. It's living like God. I know this is true. Every time I do freely give and I see the, the blessing it brings to the receiver and the blessing that it brings into my life, I wonder, man, why don't I just do this more, more willingly, more cheerfully? Jesus said this. He says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And he knew something about this. I mean, 
He gave the ultimate gift for you and for me, his life. And that was an incredibly costly gift. He gave it anyway. And you didn't deserve it. And neither did I. And he gave it anyway. You know, gifts of love don't always have to be costly to convey love. I mean, they can be simple notes. Uh, they can be gifts of a, a time or an encouragement or service. Uh, you know, one way to really bless a person whose love language is giving and receiving gifts is to become a gift detective. In other words, just really start to listen. You're in a store, and, and maybe this person says, oh, it's a beautiful scarf, but for whatever reason, they don't buy it for themselves. Aha, you see. Or maybe it's a piece of music they hear and you think, oh man, I can get that for him, for her. Or maybe it's a piece of jewelry that they just, they just remark, oh, that's beautiful, that's beautiful. But they, they don't buy it for themselves. Ah. Maybe it's a certain kind of chocolate that this person likes. Maybe it's a dirt bike. <laughs> just saying. And then for a birthday or an anniversary or... For no special day at all. Just give it to them. And they will be so blessed. They will feel so loved because that's speaking their language. One of the most moving stories in the book, Five Love Languages, and if you've read it, you'll, you'll remember it. It's a story that Dr. Chapman tells about a, a married couple, Doug and Kate. Uh, Kate tells Dr. Chapman how for years... She's been complaining to her husband, Doug, just how empty the marriage feels to her, but nothing changes. Nothing ever comes back from Doug. She reached the point, she says, in the relationship where she literally hated him. He just just disgusted her. And then they found out about this whole concept of the five love languages, and Doug realized for the first time, it kind of just dawned on him that receiving gifts is the love language of my wife. It was like a switch was flipped in his heart. He just didn't know this. And so on Monday of that afternoon, after they'd gone to this conference together, uh, he brought Kate home a rose, just a rose, nothing more, and just gave it to her, and she started crying. Tuesday afternoon, Doug called home and asked Kate, hey, how about I stop and get a pizza for you and the kids and just bring that home? And, and she was floored. He had never, ever done anything like that before. And when he got home, she actually gave him a hug. Wednesday, uh, he actually brought home all the kids a box of Cracker Jacks. Remember the little boxes of Cracker Jacks? Some of us my age, you know, and the, the prize in there is so cool to get that. And, and he brought a potted plant home for Kate, just saying, you know, I know the rose isn't going to last that long. And I thought you might like something that would last a little longer. Thursday night, it was, it was a card. And in it, he wrote, you know, I've never been able to express love well, but I hope this card will help me to do it. And in the card, he invited her out on a date for Saturday night. He'd never done anything like that before. Friday night, he took her and the kids to a cookie store to buy them their, their favorite cookies. And so Kate says, Dr. Chapman, you, you have to understand, this man had never given me even a flower since the day we got married. He'd never given me a card. He always said, it's just a waste of money. You just look at it and then you throw it away. And so, you know, Doug looked at Kate and said, you know, I'm sorry for all those years I was so dense. I'm sorry for all those years that we lost. With God's help, I'm going to be a gift giver for the rest of my life, he said. 
And she said, well, you, you can't go on giving gifts every single day. You can't afford it. And he said, well, maybe not every day. But I can do it once a week, and that would be 52 more gifts in a year than you have received in the last five years put together. And so you see, with God's help, a marriage got reborn because someone got committed to speaking a love language that a person could hear. And you understand, of course, it's all about love. It's about love. And one of the things that love does is love gives. It always does. You know, I think, man, when I die, I can't think of anything better that could be said of me than, you know, he tried to love somebody. What a great epitaph that would be. Because, you know, that's God. For God so loved the world that he gave and he gave for you and he gave for me and he just the greatest gift the gift of Jesus but he just keeps on giving and so you know let's do that this week let's practice let's put up the antenna let's pay attention to the people around us particularly if this is their love language and let's just be detectives about this thing what would convey doesn't have to be big and expensive i mean a dirt bike's not that expensive but what would convey what would convey the message i love you and let's get about that because our God is always about that. So next week we'll come together again. And we'll learn another love language, okay? Pray with me. God, thank you that you are the great giver. And every moment of our lives, God, we are receiving from you, whether we're even aware of it or not, friends and family, life and breath, food and clothing, jobs, sunrises, sunsets, beautiful music, beautiful literature, the gift of our bodies, the gift of our minds, the gift of your Son, Father. God, help us to be more like you. Help us to be givers. Help us to love the people around us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.